Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Certified Forgotten, the horror podcast that talks about the movies that other horror podcasts aren't talking about. It's not our official catchphrase, but I kind of like it. I think I might keep it. Uh, I am, as always, one half of your hosts, Matthew Monagle. I am joined by the other Matt on the internet because there's only two of us, Matt Donato. How you doing, buddy? I don't like how I'm always the other Matt. Well, it's I start talking. If you want to do the introduction next time, then I can be the other Matt. Actually, no, I will always be the other Matt because you're way better at that than I am. So <laughs> you right. get that duty no matter what. Fair enough. Um, and, you know, this is a horror podcast. So Matt Donato and I did the, a smart thing, a, a, an important thing that every horror podcast should do, which is take off the entire month of October uh, because we were super busy. So at a time where nobody's demanding any horror content. So things are off to a good start. We're going great. But it's November now. Um, we're back on the horror beat. And we've got an exciting guest to talk about today's movie. So... First and most important, Matt, will you please introduce our guest today? Yes, I very much can. Today with us, we have from the Playlist and from the Playlist Podcast Network, Mr. Ryan Oliver. Demon Wind. Yes. Wait, you, you know the callbacks. So wait, uh, I was informed that this was actually the, the Demon Wind podcast. I, I think I I think I jumped on the wrong feed here. Yeah, I, I might have mistakenly told you that just because I am me. And uh, yeah, Mr. Monagle, so we're just hijacking this episode and talking only Demon Wind again. I wonder how long we, people would actually stick with us if it just turned out every episode was a Demon Wind episode. Could you imagine I just every time didn't tell you I told the guests to watch Demon Wind and we just kept going into it with different people? <laughs> See, the fun thing for me on the edit is I just drop in the points that I made last time. Just keep recycling that same audio and see if anyone even notices. <laughs> Well, fortunately, even though Matt didn't really properly prepare me, coincidentally, by happenstance, I watched uh, the movie we're going to be discussing today last night anyway. So uh, I think I'm I think I'm good to go. We'll All look right. at that. A, a nice little surprise for everyone that will stay on topic. <laughs> look how smooth this is going. Um, so we've got an we've got an exciting movie that I think everybody actually kind of liked, which is a, not a first for the show, but we don't usually get kind of across the board agreement. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But before we get started. We always like to talk to our guests about their relationship to the horror genre. And Ryan, I've, you and I have had a lot of interactions online. You know, we're in a, a terribly going fantasy football league together. So we've got a lot of back and forth throughout the day. Um, but the one thing that I don't know is I know that you write um, a lot about horror. I know that that's something that you consider, you know, yourself to be a, a good writer on. And you certainly are. But I don't know how that started for you. So talk to me a little bit about your relationship to the horror genre, when it started, when you found it, something that you could talk about and write about and you know feel like you belonged as part of this community as well sure thing well i think the earliest that i got into the horror genre and and i wouldn't say the this particular set of movies are horror per se but they have a certain sort of spooky quality to them that that i think definitely fueled my curiosity at a young age um some of the early uh, i'm referring to some of the early tim burton movies um at a very young age watched nightmare before christmas edward scissorhands uh even the first Batman has has some elements of horror again even though they're not necessarily horror movies but I think my first real entry into the genre uh, that I watched far too young uh, was was the first Nightmare on Elm Street I think that was the one that um, it, you know kept me awake at night it kept me a uh, little little terrified at the time but um, there was something about it and something so sort of uh, dreamy not no pun intended but like really really interesting about it that kept me going back and that's sort of my entry point um, into the genre and um, of course there were there were other classics um, probably yeah I'd say at a young age that I, I watched like Halloween 
uh, probably Texas Chainsaw a little bit later. Um, so those those were probably the early ones, of course, because Halloween was on TV pretty much around every Halloween. And so I watched that as well. Um, sorry for talking in circles, but those that's uh, it basically all starts with Nightmare on Elm Street, I would say. I like how many unintentional Nightmare on Elm Street puns you just made without even trying. You're like, kept me awake at night. It was the dream. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm just going on and on. Like, does he know he's doing this? I didn't know that. I, that was not planned. Uh, it just seems to happen. Um, just seemed to happen that way. So what, as you were kind of getting to know the horror genre, what did you find yourself drawn to as sort of the things about horror movies that, that you like? Because Matt and I always talk about the fact that I'm drawn, our, our types are very well known. I'm drawn to sort of slow moving grief and guilt, um, a lot of psychological horror. Donato is drawn to all horror, but I would say specifically, you know, horror comedies, um, stuff with a lot of really out there practical effects. Goofy gore is more his jam. So where do you fall on the broad spectrum of, of every type of horror genre and subgenre that exists? I would probably swing more on your spectrum, Monocle. I, I do like the more psychological aspects uh, of horror about grief and about, you know, it, to me, I, I feel like that genre, I don't want to say more than any other, but really can help people understand and process the feelings that they're feeling. Like, um, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like comedy a little bit in that way where people say like, you know, the best way to get your message across to people is to make them laugh. And then that message therefore will might stick. And I, I'd say it's the same thing with horror. If, if you scare startle, um, you know, because life, life as a whole is just horrible and horrific. And so um, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to reflect that mirror to people and show that, Hey, there's other people going through what you might be going through um, can, can really help stick that message. But um, you know, that is to say that I don't enjoy certain, you know, horror comedies and, and goofy, gory over the top practical effects. Uh, we are going to be talking about a slasher film later on here. And, and I definitely have an uh, affection for that subgenre of horror as well. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, turning my nose up at any other type uh, of horror, but I do tend to prefer the more slow burning moodier um, like pieces such as, you know, such as what you're referring to Monagle. Hmm. Donato, you have a rebuttal? I'm giving I'm giving you a window here to talk about your I, I I mean, I was going to, but I feel like it, like you said, it is so well known that I am for the slow burns. Don't get me wrong here. Like we talked about sauna. You opened my eyes to that. I was the one that recommended, you know, Seder and these other, films to you so it's not that i don't love the snow uh slow burn but yes i will admit that and everyone knows on this podcast how many times do i talk about demon win how many times do i talk about that ridiculousness there's no rebuttal needed it's always my taste but i am very curious to talk about party hard die young when we get to it because seeing your tweets mr monagle and ryan too i mean I'm surprised we're all kind of in agreement here. I thought Party Hard was going to be a total Donato movie and it was going to be a harder sell for you guys, but I, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it here. Well, it's going to be fun. And I should say, as, as just a little bit of cross-promotion, Matt Donato just finished putting together a list of the top 100 horror films of the decade. And while it is in vogue to sort of bash on him and his tastes, both on and off this podcast, I don't think you'll find a list that captures the full diversity of the horror genre both demographically nationally national cinemas subgenres and types like they're all represented they're all intermingled in a really good way so go to slash film check out matt's list i've complimented him once on today's episode 
not going to do it again. And I'm going to thank you for that because I do appreciate your support through all this. And I did want to say before when you said we took October off not to, uh, you know, sarcastically saying not putting out October content. I mean, that was because we were both busting our asses off actually writing October content. And I do apologize to the listeners if we have built somewhat of a fan base and we let you down. But I had to work on a hundred best of decade list for Slash Film that you should all go read at this point. Please do support me. Thankfully, you only needed to watch those hundred movies, though, because you knew right. exactly what the list was. going Exactly. To be. I only only those hundred. I haven't seen any other ones. I mean, according Correct. to the comments, actually, though, I haven't seen anything else. So let's not even go into that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last question for you, Ryan, before we talk about the movie. Uh, you, congratulations, are, are a, a new dad. Um, Thank you. And we we were talking actually with uh, Anya Stanley, who was a previous guest in this podcast, about that parenting horror intersection and you know how you find yourself thinking about the genre and how it changes. Obviously, these aren't questions you need to grapple with right now because I don't imagine you're you know you're you're sitting your newborn child down to watch Nightmare on Elm Street and being like, do you think that was too much? Can you process that? But I'm sure it's things you've thought about. I'm sure it's things you've talked about with your partner. So. Now that you're responsible for a living human being, you know, what do you think, how does that change kind of how you think about the consumption of media and violent media and when you might be interested in introducing your kid to some of these movies that, that helped influence you? Uh, um, it hasn't really changed. And, and thank you again for the congratulations. And it hasn't really changed how I feel about um, like, I guess, violent media, so to speak consumption, maybe um, because when, when you have a, you know, we're so inundated with, screen time um especially both in our field and just all of that um you know uh, that one thing i've been cognizant of is like how much screen time um will my child have like further down the road but as far as like specific specific introduction to the genre um and my my wife and i have talked about this and debated this because i think her her side we're, we're brought up very different in that way where like my parents my parents were a little younger when they had me. And so I wasn't one of those, you know, kids who they, they're like, Oh, let your kid watch whatever at a certain age. Um, but they, they did what they or let me watch what they thought was appropriate at the time, even if maybe it, it wasn't. Um, my wife's parents were a little bit older. And so therefore there were like, she was more limited on things that she watched at a certain age. So we've had that discussion about like, not just horror, but what is appropriate at certain ages. But I think what we've come down to, is a pretty good agreement in terms of like um in terms of like kid-friendly horror i think i already mentioned nightmare on or not nightmare on elm street excuse me <laughs> like nightmare before christmas and things like that that have a, a little bit more edge to them for a kid's movie or like your Leicas, like Coraline or paranorman um that that like that would be the, the probably the best introduction and then one i'd say probably like 10 or so start introducing the the, the nightmare on elm street so those ones that they're not too extreme they may be even a little dated they you know your kid may even think they're a little silly um but mm. that 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 would be the age to be like okay these are this is the movies that dad liked for these reasons and and you know have a discussion about it um so we're we're still in those talks but um or, or just finding things that even if they're maybe like that are kid friendly, but still resonate in a thematic way. This is, this completely was not in preparation for this podcast, but um, around Halloween, my wife wanted to put on like a kid friendly horror movie, like that we watched when we were younger. And so I threw on, um, I rented Casper, the 1995 Casper, which I had not seen 
probably since i i know i wore that vhs tape out as a kid but i i have not seen it since i was a kid and it, it's definitely a little dated and there's a lot of like dead dead puns that that kind of wear on you but i was really taken and surprised by how well that movie deals with grief and the afterlife in a way that's palpable for a kid but it's not condescending either and so uh, like looking at things like that um that are that are not like condescending for your kid but actually can can show um that they can grasp with those themes and that they're capable of doing so you know i kind of liked um a house with a clock in its walls uh as as a recent version i i know it has its haters i know it isn't everyone's kind of taste of kid-friendly horror but like you were saying just thinking off the top of my head and that kind of fantastical movie you can watch and get the genre elements but still watch it with your children have like good enough time i was i was impressed with a house uh with a clock on its walls just on that merit i'll have to check it out because i you know i i didn't um for the last however long if it's something that i never covered for a site uh, i usually wouldn't see the the kid-friendly horror not for any reason other than just i would never get to it but i know now in the next few years i'm gonna have to be watching those movies anyway so i should now would probably be a good time to pre-screen that but i heard good things about it i'm, I'm not traditionally um a, a fan of Eli Roth and I think that's the other reason I didn't watch the movie but I have uh, heard from from you Donato and from others that it's a, a worthwhile movie so I'm definitely going to check it out and then also yeah. while we're while we're on the topic of the conversation not sorry to cut you off Mr. Monagle but um, did anyone read uh, Jason Zinnemann's article in New York Times about this very topic I haven't no okay Go I bookmarked read. it, but I haven't you read did. it. You did, okay, yeah. So Jason Zeneman wrote this piece, basically. The title of it is, I showed my seven-year-old daughter Jaws, and I regret nothing. And he goes into this whole, basically, like, mentality of he likes showing his daughter these scary films at a young age because, number one, you know, we outgrow horror in a way, and we find things less scary as time goes on. And then, not only that, but basically, kids' minds are more susceptible to horror, and they can watch these films and there's an art to being scared. And not only that, but it unlocks these like analytical synapses in kids' minds. And like, yeah, being scared is terrible and being scared is something that we associate with a bad feeling, but it actually works in the reverse and it makes kids more aware and it makes kids more in tune with these things. And, you know, to have such an early age of getting into grief and horror and things of that nature. I don't know. It was really just a really interesting read. So um, I would suggest everyone take a look at that piece about introducing children to horror and seeing what age you would do that at. I cannot wait to check that piece. I did see the headline and I think I saw it shared maybe from you, uh, yeah. uh, Donato, but um, I look forward to that and uh, apologize to you guys and to our listeners for the crying baby in the background, speaking <laughs> of introducing kids to horror. So there might be um, some editing magic that can take that out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, if you didn't hear a baby listeners, it's cause I'm really good at my job. Um, I will, I will um, close out that part of the conversation, too, by saying that Donato's right. A, a House with a Clock on Its Walls, I would go so far as to say it's one of the best kid-friendly horror films you'll ever find. And I say that as somebody who doesn't wow. like Eli Roth either. So it just it, it's that, that right balance of it, it works on one level for kids. It gives them a message about fitting in and about dealing with grief and sadness that's really good. Eli Roth throws in some weird visuals for the adults as well. It's just, it's a good, it'll be a good standby 
um, for you, I think, at some point. So, but you'd never know it's Eli Roth. I mean, that's the other thing you, too. Like, you know, you we, would, we, no, we all know of Eli Roth, but yeah, you would just because it's a little bit more bloody than a lot of those. Like, there are little moments, like with the the books flying off the shelf, and everybody gets paper cuts as opposed to just like being chased by books. Like, there's those little things that you're like, oh, here's somebody that was like, can I do this? No, I'm gonna do it anyways. You can't do that. Okay, can we keep it? Like, there's a little bit of that going on. Fair, fair. I'll, I'll give you that then. I, I just meant more in the, uh, yeah, this isn't the Green Inferno, Eli Roth. <laughs> this is this is very much the Eli Roth that is yeah. playing to a family crowd, and you're kind of like, oh, you can do this too. Wow, okay. Yeah, well, That's good a- to know. And um, I was going to say, with both you guys and your, your uh, divulging tastes in horror both coming together on that movie has me pretty sold to check it out. So um, I might have to report back to you guys. Yeah, I don't know if we figured out what it means when Donato and I agree on something. But, it means the worst. It means that hell is frozen over and the end is near. But I feel like that's a good segue into today's film, where I think we actually agreed on something. So let's talk about party hard, die young. Um, and what was what did we agree the other last the last party of your life is the actual literal translation of the German title, which the I final part the final party of your life should have been that. I'm not criticizing you guys. Shudder, you should have changed it. Whatever. Um, Party Hard, Die Young is a 2018, released in 2019, um, Austrian horror film. It is about a group of teenagers who are in their final year of their equivalent of high school. Um, And every year it's tradition for them, for this school and for other kids around the country to send them uh, to go off to Croatia. There's an island in Croatia where they throw like this big rage party. What is it? X-Force? X-Jam. X-Jam, X-Jam, which is a real a real party, and they get a very nice call-out in the opening credits to say that a lot of these scenes were filmed at the real-life X-Jam. So think of like the equivalent of the United States of going to Florida for spring break. This is the equivalent for them. This group of high school students goes to this party, lots of alcohol, lots of drugs, lots of sex. They're having a good time. It's sort of their last bash before they start to go off to other places like Vienna or Munich for college, and the kind of this, this core group of high school friends splits up. And then... Um, The main character, Julia's friend, Jesse, goes missing. Uh, And as they're trying to figure out what happened to her, another one of the friends goes missing. And progressively throughout the course of this film that's taking place on this giant party island with thousands of teenagers, you know, all in the middle of like one prolonged rave, all of these kids start to go missing. There are little throwbacks to like 90s slashers where they're getting text messages instead of phone calls. They're getting Snapchats instead of phone calls because... I guess that's all we had back then. But just the way that this killer is sort of playing with them, it becomes apparent that there is something in their shared history that is making them the targets of what's going on. And from there, Party Hard, Die Young is your typical teenage slasher. Um, Some people die, some people live. There are stories to tell and lots of creative and violent kills. Now, before we talk about this, um, I should note that this movie has three reviews in Rotten Tomatoes. Two of them are fresh and one of them are rotten. And I think it's important going forward that we share just a little bit of Matt Donato's prose with our listeners, since he is one of the reviews of pretty much everything that we have here. So here's the Rotten Tomatoes call out for Party Hard, Die Young. Matt Donato wrote, Copious narcotics, underdeveloped cranial capacities, a masked murderer who refuses to forget what you did last summer, punch your ticket to this vicious vacation from hell. Matt Donato, what were you thinking when you wrote that? I was probably drunk. Fair enough. The end of the podcast. <laughs> that's just, that's <laughs> how I can answer most things. Um, no, I don't know. I just try to make it somewhat inviting when I write about things, or at least pique some kind of curiosity. So, uh, yeah, why not make a, a 90s slasher pun in my Rotten Tomatoes? 
quote. Also, I just try to post the most ridiculous things on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a game to me. So that's just where I'm going for. It's pretty good. Um, Let's talk about Party Hard, Die Young. Uh, And let's start, Ryan, with you. This was your selection, actually. You went through kind of the list of movies, a running list that we keep of films that have five or fewer Rotten Tomato reviews. And this one jumped out at you. So what what made you think, I want to watch this film and then I want to talk about it? Well, mostly because Shudder tried to get me to watch it for the last month. Um, For those who don't know, the Shudder app for Xbox One and for Roku has three different um, streaming channels as opposed to just the one on the web browser. There's the uh, It Came From Shudder web browser, or Jesus Christ, sorry, uh, live stream. And that's like the one that you would find on your web browser. It's the one where like the Joe Bob Briggs marathons are and, and things of that sort. Um, then there's, it's the Gulag now for Halloween, but it was like a psychological thriller channel. And then there's a Slashix stream. And so uh, for the last six weeks when I was on uh, paternity leave and uh, late at night when it was my turn to to feed my son, I would just turn the Slashix channel on because, it, you know, I didn't have to think too hard. I didn't have to, um, you know, I didn't have to figure out what to watch. So I would just throw that stream on. And I learned, I learned even the month before that it's pretty much the same loop. Like it's the same 24 hour loop that plays on the Slashix channel. Uh, like before he was born, I, I discovered like around a certain time of night, it would be like they'd play Pieces and then they'd play Madhouse and then Bloody Birthday. And that was like the September stream. And all through October, because it'd be the same time every night, I'd come in about the middle of Chopping Mall. And because I adore that movie, I would just let it finish till the very end. But of course, that's a 75 minute movie. So midway through it, you only have like 30 minutes left. Um, And then the movie that followed it was Party Hard, Die Young. So I was watching little snippets as as I was doing other things. But I it, and it looked intriguing to me, but I hadn't actually sat down to watch the whole thing. So when you guys shared the list to me, I think I even mentioned this uh, on our Slack channel. I'm like, well, Shutter keeps trying to make me watch this movie, so I might as well actually just watch it. And uh, so I did, and um, it's it's I liked it overall. Um, it, it's a it's a blender film for sure. It, it's like Spring Breakers meets Unfriended meets prom night slash terror train slash slaughter high like that specific whodunit slasher that involves teenagers and and i'm kind of trying to tiptoe around spoilers for people here but but that involves something that went wrong at some time um so so it's it's definitely a mix of that but um what i really appreciated about it is um it's so hard post scream to make a decent slasher movie uh, we know the tropes and scream and and then furthermore, I know what you did last summer, which is name checked in this movie. Um, like mm-hmm. any of those Kevin Williamson ones that are just like, you know, they, they expose the tropes, they sent them up and it was just it's been really difficult. And so it's difficult to make a straightforward one. And then but then conversely, on like the worst end of the spectrum is like if your slasher script isn't working, people tend to throw meta or self-referential aspects into it to be like well maybe if we point out our flaws it will absolve us of them and that doesn't really work either and so it was nice to watch one that was like like it's trope heavy like this movie doesn't reinvent the wheel by any stretch of the word but it it executes its tropes to the best of its ability it uh introduces new technology um a la something like unfriended like 
I think Monogle, you already set it up where they there's Instagram and Snapchat and things of that sort. And I think that's all really done well and stylish and in a pretty cool way. And um, the mystery is actually genuinely engaging. Um, I, I think the only thing that I wouldn't even say brings it down, but the only thing that it definitely brings over from some of its uh, ancestors from the eighties is, is there's a, there's definitely an aggressive mean spiritedness to this movie. Like uh, most of the characters are extremely unlikable and it takes turns and we reveal things about certain characters that is just like inexcusable and granted like the movie doesn't absolve them of the things they've done again i'm going to try and tiptoe around spoilers but like that's maybe the only thing is i'm just like i don't really care about 95 percent of these characters but as a genre exercise i was very pretty impressed with it yeah and i think to piggyback off that i'll just jump in really quick what works for me and what impressed me the first time watching party hard die young is that yes it doesn't reinvent the wheel but it modernizes the wheel so well it takes those 80s and 90s tropes and it's able to make a version of a slasher that we don't get to see very often anymore as you've already said you know it's hard to make a slasher post scream but you can still do it i mean we were still getting slashers of this kind of mean-spirited nature um and pretty much until 2012 i want to say i keep thinking about stephen miller's uh, silent night remake and that being one of the last times I really saw a slasher that felt ingrained in that slasher culture that once ruled the horror genre. And after that, it all kind of went downhill. And, you know, we could talk about the reasons of why that happened. People started getting away from these mean spirited films, as you know, we keep saying it, but it is. I mean, the also thing playing against that attitude is it being an international film and especially being German. You know, they're a little more blunt and they don't really care as much about the PC policing then i think has kind of i'm not by any means saying it's bad i'm not by any means trying to be out here saying like oh social justice warriors blah blah blah. but you know in american cinema and culture we've taken a little harder stance on maybe saying a word like you know faggot or something like that which you know this film does use once or twice and there are some some thoughts not thoughts but there are some themes that play in a world of like all right this is kind of dicey material but it also fits the world. It fits these teenagers. These are dumb kids. They haven't come to terms with these kind of things yet and had to think about, you know, what they're saying and what they're doing. And that's kind of what this film is about, too. It's about these hateable characters being faced with some kind of decision from their past. And we see it all play out in real time. And I think for as mean-spirited as it is, it has to be because that also plays into the climax. That plays into the realization that these kids finally have. You know, this is their this is their rumspringa. This is their one getaway before they finally become quote-unquote adults and go to college. So it's all part of this undercurrent that pushes these kids through some kind of character development that surprisingly I found. I don't know. It, it just really worked for me in a way that you took the dumb slasher formula you added some Snapchat, you added some modern technology, which sure, okay, many films do, but you kept me guessing the whole time and you kept me going on this journey with the deaths, with the narration. I was impressed. Yeah, and I think, so, so first of all, I think we should talk a little bit about the ending because I, I think it's hard to talk about this movie for all the reasons you kind of outlined, Donato, without discussing the secret, the thing that, that is the reason why these kids are getting killed. So now is your opportunity to turn off the podcast if you don't want to hear about the end of Party Hard, Die Young. 
if you're sticking around um, near the end of the film, and it's teased throughout some of the chase sequences by a video that's playing, uh, the killer leaves a phone with this video of them from a two years ago in high school that plays. And every time we watch it, we get to see a little bit more and we're starting to piece the thing together. And it turns out that uh, one of the characters, uh, two of the characters in this group of friends, they had a, a weekend getaway in a, in a cabin with a bunch of folks. And there was this kind of awkward girl who was trying to join the group. They played a game of truth or dare with her. Um, she said dare. They sent her seven minutes in heaven or whatever in the closet. And it turns out that two of the, the members, the two broiest, douchiest members of the group, use that as an excuse to sexually assault and rape this woman. And she eventually left that high school, um, the group of friends, because their high school students kind of didn't really think too much about that after it happened. And they find out a few years later that the girl actually succumbed to her trauma um, and killed herself. And the killer is revealed to be her older brother, who's one of the staffers at this big party that is kind of getting justice on her behalf. Now, here's why all of that is important in, in my eyes and what makes this sort of an interesting movie. To me, for all the reasons that we've talked about, it's smart, it's flashy, it has, I don't think likable characters, but it has believable and authentic characters, which is important to any slasher. All of that is true, and all of that makes Party Hard Die Young interesting to watch. The thing that really is going to make this something I think we're going to see a lot of writing about in the future is this movie sort of feels like it exists at this intermediary stage between 90s and 80s slashers and the idea that these traumas were that happened to somebody that you know they had to face it but you know they were, it was okay because they overcame somebody that was acting as sort of an avenger and the other person and sort of this contemporary era we live in where things like brett kavanaugh happen where somebody is being held accountable and should be held accountable for actions that happened decades ago things that they did when they were you know quote just a teenager that is going to have an effect on how we tell these stories and how slashers address sort of this this justice, this childhood trauma, lived trauma angle. And I think that this is a movie that is sort of a little bit in both camps. It knows that 80s and 90s movies exist. It obviously name drops. Um, I know what you did last summer. And it operates on a very basic level as one of those slashers. But there is a thread in this of the fact that these characters are, are unlikable, that it isn't looking for redemption, it isn't looking for salvation. It doesn't pay that off entirely in the end, but there is this idea that these kids did a bad thing and that they are getting what's coming to them. And it's not just something that they need to band over and overcome because, hey, they were 15 when it happened, that there are some ramifications for this. This feels like a movie that is going to be seen by somebody who's eventually going to make something really interesting, or at least it's going to sort of push this subgenre of slashers into an interesting direction. I think that's the biggest key to the movie, which, which you had already laid out perfectly. You know, I guess we've already, we're spoiling, we're talking about the ending and is, you know, in those eighties and nineties slashers, even if something as horrific as this event had happened, it, the, the killer, the slasher quote unquote, would still be the one demon demified and the one that needs to um, be taken out, which does happen in this movie. But the the thing that I appreciate most about it is that the the two bro douchebags that you already referred to uh, are not allowed off the hook. That they are going, you know, they're I mean, they'll go to a hospital to get heal their wounds, and then they're going to jail. At least that's what it seemed like at the end of the movie. That they're being held accountable for yeah. the things that they have done, and so like that that layer makes this movie fascinating. If it was just another, if it was just another, let's we there's this killer 
who's killing people for reasons and then we find out reasons and they still have to be taken out i mean think about friday the 13th where it's like yeah it's it's traumatic it's certainly traumatic what happened to um mrs Voorhees losing her son and whatnot but it's like she's still the one vilified by the end of that movie like they're and the the campers are still the ones sort of redeemed and i feel like this one really flips that on its head where you know certain people maybe you know no one is really redeemed even the people who were unaware of the specifics of what happened to this young girl they are still held accountable by association because they allowed that uh that situation to happen and that's i think what makes this more than just a a really entertaining stylish modern update of the template and like you said something to make it move forward and and uh, i think that's that's what really really got me by the yeah i think so specifically i want to talk about the character of cheesy really quick his uh nickname is obviously cheesy Mm -hmm. but he is the character in every horror movie that is made fun of by all the girls in the group He's just trying to get laid the whole time, but he's doing it awkwardly and always getting brushed off. And in a lot of other horror movies, and this is why I think Party Hard Die Young learns a little bit from the mistake, not mistakes, but the times of the past and how we viewed those characters. Cheesy would have been comedic relief. Cheesy would have been about all the jokes. We see him like masturbating at one point. It's like a cutaway because one of the girls goes like, you're never going to get laid by one of us. And then a cutaway to him like jerking off in the shower just to prove it. And it's like, yeah, so he's this the quote unquote sad guy that will never get the girl in the end. But the things that he does as he keeps going, he makes these lewd comments. He's being a little leery and not predatory, but it's definitely not okay what he's doing. And eventually he's used as a red herring because we already talked about the ending. We know who the killer is. He's used as one of the red herrings along the way to say like, oh, what if Cheesy's the killer? Because he just, you know, he's one of these sad sacks turned into a slasher villain because he'll never get what he wants in the end. Uh, But the way they do that and the way that they still make him held accountable for what he's done because he gets in trouble because of exactly what how he's treated these girls the whole time and what he's done this whole time. And it's a little bit of a learning experience versus in many other slasher films and lesser slasher films uh, in this modern era that don't understand as much. Cheesy just would have been another character that probably either dies or survives until the end. And it's never addressed that what he's doing is kind of, kind of skeevy and kind of not okay. But at least in party hard die young, he might be used as a red herring, but it's a red herring that comes with some kind of circumstance and some kind of like situational awareness. Yeah, he would have been like, uh, what's his name, Shelly in Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, the one, like <laughs> right. the one that's like playing pranks and and comes on way too strong and creepy. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying for sure. Yeah, so I think, think that just it just gives it a little bit more of an edge there. And yeah, so Matt, you can go with that though. Well, I just I wrote down like Crispin Glover and underlined it like four different times throughout the course of the movie. <laughs> that's that's a really yeah, it's a really good comparison right there. Austria has found its its uh, Crispin lover wannabe. Um, the, the entire country can rest. You found who you were looking for. Yeah, and, and Donato, to the point that you were making too, there's also, there's that whole introductory sequence too about Denise and Carmen. And Denise is sort of the, the mean girl of the group. Um, and Carmen is the one that the group sort of identifies as, as having body issues, that she's not as pretty or as thin as the rest of them. And the movie does take that as an opportunity to sort of flip the script. Carmen has kind of a moment of empowerment um, at Denise's expense that eventually she kind of goes to her head and and deals with it in an interesting way as well. So I don't think that Party Hard Die Young has the answers to 
all of the questions that it's asking about teenagers and more importantly teenagers in horror films because i think this movie is much more engaged with teenagers in horror films than it is you know actual teenagers that are out there in the world this is a movie that it's engaging with its own genre in a way that's really interesting i don't necessarily think that you would come away unless you're i don't don't know what your life experience would be if you watch this and go oh my god that's exactly what teenagers are like but i think I, i think it does an interesting job of sort of playing with those conventions playing with the way that we expect these archetypes to unfold over the course of the movie we immediately because we have a history with slashers start to bucket the characters and then the way that the movie says you know these buckets that you put them in are kind of correct but these characters don't really fit and also the fact that you put them in that bucket was sort of shitty to begin with it has a way of doing that to kind of make this a little bit smarter make this a little bit more engaging Um, i don't think it pays it off particularly well in the end i think it lets a lot of characters off the hook in a way that it might not have but at least it's asking those questions and at least it's trying to work with those depictions and that makes it um that that makes it surprising it makes it it if you are one of those people that says well the slasher just can't be relevant in 2019 i'm gonna point to this and say you know we're we're it's right around the corner 30 years nostalgia hype we're gonna get a wave of kevin williamson wannabe stuff and if it's if it manages to follow in this footsteps, I think we're going to be okay. And that's why I wanted to bring up or brought up uh, mentioning it being like a blender movie of multiple things put together. And that's why I wanted to bring in spring breakers as, as a comparison, not just from the standpoint that they're teenagers at this big rave party or anything like that. But like, you know, Korean's film is this very like dark satire on a, a generation raised by popular culture and the, the sort of, um, you know how how that affects people how that affects young minds how that i'm sorry i'm losing my thought here but like there's um there's there's a comparison to be made i think with those two movies like that movie certainly lets characters off the hook to a a point to like a greater point but i think like this movie plays in that sandbox a little bit more than than just the slasher sandbox like it, it is trying to get at something greater and like you said it doesn't totally stick the landing in the ending but the fact that some of these characters are not completely left off the hook is is um more than enough to to recommend it yeah it's okay. it's actually kind of interesting to look at who gets the nastiest treatments in this film if we're talking about the slasher deaths because matt as you said before the two you know the two rapists are they are dealt with in a certain way that relates to what they've done and they are left very, very battered both emotionally and physically, but they're alive at the end of it. And yet there's this other character named Luki. And not only is he killed very graphically and tortured, but then during the end credits, we see his body again. And it's kind of like Luki was like passed out drunk the whole time. And I know that's a commentary on like, even if you're there and not aware, you're still part of what happens. But it takes the most aggression out on this poor guy that was, you know, passed out drunk during the actions, but he gets the worst death. And the people who actually did the very, very wrong act, they're left alive at the end of it. it, it it's just an odd commentary, like you were saying, that. Yeah, it's definitely a film that... that it is a horror film that is almost more interested in the people that stand by and watch than the people that, that perpetrate, right? The people, the old story about the woman that screamed in the alley, um, as she was being stabbed to death and all the, all the neighbors, um, didn't 
you know, open the windows or call 911 or something like this. It's a horror film, I think, for that, for the for those people that condemns those people that heard those and ignored them rather than did something about it. And it's rare, I think, to see usually all of the kills in a movie like this are done to affect the primary um, or the person that the killer has identified as, as the primary culprit, right? Like the friends that die or the people that die are there to fuck with the main character who is, you know, has that connection to it or, or did something. It's more, it's more in relation to that. And these characters are getting picked off on their own merit for their inability to have made a difference at a time when they should have. Um, and that's, that's worth noting. So the one thing I will say though, is even with all these different kind of treatments that we're talking about, and you know, maybe the one character is getting brutalized while the people who survive have done the bad acts and maybe the payoff isn't as good as you wanted, Matt. But I will say in this era of not having that many slashers, not only was I very impressed by the way they narrated the story throughout and the way that they kept a mystery going with all these red herrings, because there's multiple characters throughout the film that we think could take the mantle of being the slasher villain because he has a mask on the whole time, the happy face mask. But not only does it do that well, I think that it, kept me guessing and I didn't even see the ending coming. So maybe the payoff wasn't great, but I think the reveal at the end, it's better than I was expecting from a film of this nature. Like it's sold as, you know, the name is party hard, die young. It's sold as one of these fun cash grabs for slasher fans, but I don't know. I think it sticks the landing as far as revealing who the killer is and keeping us until the very last moment. Then we go, oh shit this all makes sense now well the mechanics are certainly set up very well like that that's that's one of the definitely one of the strengths of the movie is that it does because of the slow sort of reveal of the the anna character and what's going on there and then that the, them coming to grips and then the fact that it bounces through you know it goes from being like you know saying oh this person could be the killer and this person could be the killer I do think in the mechanics that way, in the way you're saying definitely keeps enough on your toes. It's just more, it's grander sort of thematic statement on the, the way of the world doesn't quite stick the landing, but in terms of actual like slasher mechanics, um, because like we've already, I think preface many, many times already on this episode of just like, we already know the convention, we know the tropes and the fact that this movie can, uh, does a good job of being surprising every step of the way, even though we've seen a million of these before is certainly to the movie's credit. So no, I, I agree with what you're saying, Donato, in terms of the, the mechanics of the movie. Um, it's just more those, those grander yeah. themes don't quite stick. Yeah. I mean, the themes are dodgy, but as you just said, you know, getting there is part of the issue in a slasher film and how many quote unquote modern slashers, because they do exist. There are, you know, your laid to rest movies. There are your indie slashers that are trying to come up here, the hatchets and whatnot. People are trying to make slashers, but the hard part for a lot of these is either keeping the killer a secret or making us care enough in the mystery that's going on. The whodunit aspect of this, I, I, I think it's like one of the better slashers that we actually get the payoff of the mechanics at the end. And I would also put it up there with another Shudder slasher that is also an original called Lake Bodum. And two, these are both international. These are both well-structured slasher movies in a time that we are not getting them. And I would definitely recommend them as a double feature if you really want to see where that slasher renaissance could possibly come from in the next few years. 
interesting. I'll have to seek that one out. And the other thing to the movie's credit too is, you know, as someone who does frequent a lot of slashers from that heyday, I, I tend to check out whatever uh, gets remastered by someone like Arrow Video or Vinegar Syndrome or think, uh, you know, any of those boutique labels. Um, one thing to this movie's credit too is there's not a lot of filler, which is there's a lot of there's a problem with a lot of some of those older slashers that it's like even if the the shot on filmness of it is gorgeous and the restoration looks gorgeous even if the practical effects are very good and there's some really creative deaths there's a lot of these slashers that just like take place in the woods because they didn't need a film permit to shoot there and there's just a bunch of filler of people fucking around in the woods and nothing happens for a very very long time and so credit to party hard die young for actually like using its to actually keeping its pace and using its story and keeping you on your toes as opposed to just like you know boring you in between the the kills that happen yeah and, yeah and oh, go ahead, i want i'm gonna i'm gonna jump in and actually say that you know we always talk on this podcast that you know we can have in, intelligent conversations about horror and kind of the social impact and what it's trying to say and how it relates to what's going on in the world but we also talk about horror as an entertainment genre and you know something that's engaging with the body of work that's come before and what slasher fans are looking for and so i'm gonna i'm gonna close the door on the smart talk we had some good smart talk and we talked about like the social ramifications and i think we should kind of to where you were headed already matt talk about this from the genre standpoint from like the how are the kills how are the red herrings like the things that we know and love about something like a slasher and i i do agree with you 100 percent. one of the things that i feel like these have gotten away from is believable red herrings it sort of seems like a lot of horror films understand that you can't reveal the killer until the end, but they don't do the work in order to set other people up as a killer. You know, like usually you'll come around a corner and somebody will be all bug eyed or something and be like, oh, they're, I guess they might be the killer because, you know, they're looking weird at this moment. But it's a testament to how well this movie understands the shittiness of being a teenager, the secrets that you have, like all of, all of those things that teenagers do in horror movies and how they interconnect with each other, that there are at least four people in this film that are suspected at one time or another. And when each of them are introduced, you're sort of like totally 100% makes sense in the context of this film, makes sense in the context of slashers as a broader subgenre. If that's the killer, I'm not going to be disappointed. Yeah. And I mean, even before we get into that super quick, I mean, no, not even that we have to get any farther into that. Cause I agree with you hundred percent, but I just want to bring up like the cinematography too. I think this is a beautiful film to behold. And this is coming from uh, the director of Attack of the Lederhosen Zombies was his last movie. And that's also... Uh, hold on, hold on, Matt. Can I interrupt you? Uh, Attack of the Lederhosen Zombies, our own Matt Donato wrote in 2017, <laughs> Attack of the Lederhosen Zombies doesn't quite live up to its eye-catching name, but still offers enough undead snowboarding mayhem worth a horror laugh. Continue. I was just going to say, which is a very fun movie that you should check out if the name alone makes you go, what the hell? It's not as good as a dead snow, but it's still a blast. There's like zombies that get uh, catapulted in half by snowboards and crap like that. Like I said, Matt just read my quote. That's fine. Go see it. But okay. So Attack of the Leader Rose and Zombies, full out fun, but it wasn't really the kind of first feature I would expect to translate into Party Hard Die Young because this is a very like mature film, I would say. Attack of the Leader Rose and Zombies. Definitely a first-time feature. Definitely something you look at and you can see the indie budget and the cinematography, everything that goes along with it. It's a certain kind of quality. But watching Party Hard Die Young, it just all comes together so cleanly. All these shots of like 
Tomorrowland kind of esque neons, and it's all these rave sequences and the party aspects. It's shot so beautifully, and I loved watching it just on that kind of like neon saturation level of uh, just getting lost in this like weird universe that you don't. These are kids partying under a regulated environment. Like they're being told, hey, you get a week in Croatia, just go crazy. Like their parents know they're there, everyone knows they're there. It's known what they're doing. And like as an American, it's just so funny to watch because like I went right to work literally like two days after I graduated college. There was no downtime. You know, the whole idea is kind of like, oh, good, you graduated. Great. Now go get a job like this kind of environment was so foreign to me. But the way that Dominic Hartel shoots it, I think is just it's just picture perfect for a teen slasher. I, I can't talk about it like on a level beyond how did this guy pull it off? Totally. There's two things I wanted to speak to on on what you just mentioned. Number one, uh, I did look up the director after watching the movie to see what else he had done and seen that he did this attack of the leader hose and zombies. And it is on Prime Video, I noticed. I considered watching it last night. Um, ultimately didn't. But I went to go check my uh, my letterbox page. So I'm like, I wonder if any of my mutuals have watched it. And there was only one. And it was Donato. And I'm like, of course he's seen this movie. <laughs> I mean, I have a brand, man. This is what you I do. do. You are nothing if not on brand. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned the cinematography. Because that's something I wanted to talk of in like the greater context of the slasher genre. And specifically the sort of downfall of the genre post-Scream. Um I'm not a uh, like pure, like pure celluloid fetish by any stretch of the word, but especially like Matt, you already kind of referred to like the indie slashers and uh, you know some of those even lower budget modern slashers, especially the ones that were in like the late '90s to early 2000s, where digital started becoming new, but it was like mini DV tapes from like the Dogma '95 movement, and like unless it was done in a like I guess quote unquote artistic way. Um, like the like the stuff Lars von Trier and some of the early Harmony Green were doing, um, just that type of digital looks awful, and um, as opposed to its like '80s and early '90s uh, brethren, bad looking film still looks like film, whereas like bad digital looks like unwatchable, and so I feel like that also kind of played. Uh, a part in the decline of the genre, not just screen poking fun of the tropes, but then they were making them on these smaller budgets and they looked really terrible and the effects were terrible and they're just, you know, were not enjoyable to watch. And so it was refreshing seeing something like this that, I mean, it clearly had a budget. I have no idea what the budget for the movie is, but to be able to mimic a large, like Paradiso looking festival, you know, had to take some money, um, but it is really stylish and it's very, very well shot. And I, I was, I was impressed from that aspect for sure. Yeah. One of my Twitter followers, uh, Garrett Smith at Philadelphia, he refers to the kind of color saturation that's used in this film as pop tart saturation, which I love because basically the idea is like, take a wild berry pop tart in those colors and turn that into a color filter. And that's like Donato reds are a thing for me. I love the red color filter. That's his. And I get it after watching party hard die young, because my God, there's some sequences where it's either a rave or there's even one shot where you get the main character, Julia, she's walking down this neon lit pathway and it's in the woods. So you get the neon lights uh, down the path and you get in the background just those 
purples and pinks and these like dark saturated blues just all coming together and the way the camera follows her it's almost like this alice in wonderland shit where it just doesn't seem real she's in her own little world and she is on drugs so you get the hallucinogenic aspect of that too but my god i just loved watching it i loved every minute of that so i really want can't stress enough how cinematography is so important even in a slasher film i know we watch these for the deaths and i'll happily talk about the deaths in a minute or two but when you actually have something with quality on the other technical aspects people that are out there that think like horror is only a one note genre oh it's just people that like watching people die bullshit like this is filmmaking this is freaking beautiful all right, last question before we wrap up on this film then. Let's talk about the death sequences because I actually I think this is the one place where you could make an argument that the film doesn't quite deliver. It doesn't have the most creative original deaths, but I do think that it has deaths that are appropriate for the characters and what they've done. But, you know, uh, I don't know if you would necessarily put any of these kills in like a you know, YouTube compilation or anything like that. There's not. There's just not like the flash there that I was expecting, which my, in my opinion makes it a bit better because it makes it a bit more grounded. But what do you think? Well, allow me to retort quite quickly <laughs> because I know you said you wouldn't put it in a compilation or anything like that, but I am currently working on my uh, favorite kills of the year for the new issue of Fangoria. And I definitely used uh, Luki's bottle death because I, I know you don't like see the bottle go in or anything like that. And it may not be the most, you know, inventive practical effect, but I think watching his death. So like, you know, he's chained up first and the ta- uh, duct taped hands around a hook. So he's hanging and the killer is first just like pouring vodka or some kind of clear liquor down his throat, recreating his blacked out uh, self during the truth or dare game. But the way that you're watching him struggle throughout the whole thing and you think he's going to get out and you think it's going to be some kind of fight where he might escape and he might turn the tide somehow. But what ends up happening is the killer keeps putting the bottle neck further and further into Luki's mouth. So he's just guzzling at this point. And the minute he gets his hands free and the tape rips, he's basically like passing out from like alcohol poisoning and goes face first. And the bottle just goes right in, like farther into his mouth and kills him that way. I don't know. I, I I thought that shot was pretty disturbing when you cut back to Lukey and he's just face down with that bottle halfway in his mouth, like a full bottle of vodka we're talking about here, not like a flask or anything. And it's but, halfway but... in there and the blood's coming into the bottle. And then you see his body during the final credits when everything's but... supposed to be happy and everything's supposed to be wrapped up. You go back and his body's still sunken, chained up on the bottom of the ocean floor. I don't know. I think it worked for me. But Matt, you just you to me you just said it right there. You said when you cut back, you see you can't cut back on a best kill. You can't kill you can't do the kill off camera. There's man. more to a kill than just the act itself. Yeah, imagine if like the first maniac in the original maniac anyway, that like when Tom Savini's head explodes, that they cut away from that and then we show like the aftermath of head. It just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. Well, that's true. Okay. I, I I totally get your point there. And I know there's the cutaway, but I still think the cutback is still effective enough. I th- I still think seeing the bottle that lodged in his mouth and again the blood going into the vodka that's still there. And then the gruesomeness of his bloated corpse just on the bottom of the ocean, like I said, on the bottom of the Croatian ocean floor, which is so beautiful. 
and there's Luki just just tied up and discolored and all this other stuff. I don't know. I think that worked for me as a full encapsulating kill. But I don't know. I think it works well for the kills because you're in the party atmosphere. They were all kills that were manageable within getting away with them and not getting caught because like you don't have time to do this elaborate kill sequence like a jigsaw trap or something like that. I don't know. Well, and I think that's, you know, I think to what Monocle had already said, too, I think that's what even though I don't think there are particularly I, I agree, I think that one's maybe the more memorable one solely because we do see that in the uh, end credits. It's kind of like one last cruel joke uh, towards the end. But um, I think because they are even though there's nothing that particularly stands out to me on this, but um you already mentioned that they're feasible within the world that the film sets up. And that's just, you know, that's first multitude. That's good filmmaking. And to me, you know, would I like to have a movie that a slash movie that's both good and has also good, like memorable deaths? Yes. But if my option is a good slasher story with deaths that are kind of like, eh, okay, like this one, or they have tremendous death sequences, but the movie is really boring and not interesting or engaging whatsoever. I'll certainly take something more like this. So um, I, I'm more in the camp of they don't really, uh, you know, they, they aren't the most outstanding in the world, but um, it works in service of the story. And I think that's the most important thing. So that's, that's where I land on the deaths for this movie. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, think that these are the right deaths for these characters in this film and i think it's better because of it i think it might have distracted if they went really really big um or flashy or elaborate with some of the death sequences so i actually think that's in the movie's favor um the fact that the deaths are a little subdued and a tiny bit off camera but uh yeah i know there are people out there that'll watch that and be like oh that, what, that was that was it like why didn't i get to see shit and so you know want to make you aware if you're listening and you want the the on-camera glory of a practical special effects style death, you might not get that with this film. And I think it depending, might be... depending on how you feel about Donato's bottle sequence. Right. And I think what also works in the film's favor is everything we talked about for with the technical merit of it and the storytelling. And, you know, we're engrossed in this film and maybe on a lesser slasher entry, I'd be more worried about the kills. Not that I'd, I, I do care about the kills in Party Hard Die Young, but I would be more noticeable of the cutaways and the things of this nature if I wasn't engrossed by so many other facets of this cinema. So I, I, I think I give it more credit maybe because of this, but yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of agree with you that I would have loved to see maybe when um, Denise falls from the roof and she falls onto that table with a spike coming out of it. And again, it's a cutaway. We see her falling. We look away, some blood splatters and we come back and then she's impaled. You know, other films have done the impalement. Jason X, when you're see when you see a body literally twirling down like a giant screw that's just in this spaceship. But yeah, yeah, I, I'll give you that. Well, normally this is the part on the show where we would decide kind of collectively whether or not this movie deserves to be remembered or forgotten. I think we're all in agreement that this is a movie that deserves to be remembered. So let's ask a, a different question of the group then. You know, what do you think has to happen for this to be a new canon type horror film in let's say 10 years you know if there's some 14 year old aspiring matt out there who's putting together listicles of all the great underseen horror films you know what is it what what do you think will have had to happen who will have had to latch on to this movie 
uh, in order for this to to top the list of you know oh you never saw this 2019 gem like it's it's a you know a hidden classic and eventually become part of what people think of as the new era of slashers. Can I just start this conversation really quickly by saying I'm kind of surprised that there are only three Rotten Tomatoes reviews. It played multiple festivals. It played Brussels International. It played Morbido, which were both genre festivals and in their own rights. It played Brooklyn Horror. So it's not like this movie didn't do its rounds. And I, I mean, looking at the people who did review it, like it's me and then t- you know two other people I do know, but not a single quote-unquote major publication picked this title up. And it went to shutter. It's not like it just died on VOD or stuff like that. I feel like there's such a community love for shutter at this point that even the most base level horror critics would have given it a shot in a review. I don't know. I'm just so curious how this doesn't have more than like even 10. I look at some of these films that have 10 Rotten Tomatoes reviews and maybe one or two top critics. Why not Party Hard Die Young? I don't know why this was passed on so like aggressively. Yeah, I I have to wonder the same thing. Like, yes, even though Shudder is... Um, you know, it's, it's pretty beloved at this point. I think people uh, of our circles would be willing to give a chance to it. I think in terms of review, I mean, if it never, if it never popped up in an inbox or anything like that, um, or saw at a festival, then that, that makes sense to me. But the fact that it played other genre festivals that you've laid out is a little bit shocking that it only has three reviews. Um, I, I didn't think, I certainly thought it would have had more until I saw your guys' uh, list for potential episodes. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, I haven't seen this movie at the time, but I had heard of it. Um, so I was, uh, and I knew it was a Shudder original title. So it's it's pretty shocking. And I know, you know, I don't know necessarily if they give out links or anything. I don't want to get too, like, insider baseball-y on it. But I do know they pick up a lot of festival stuff. And most of the stuff they picked up have meet that, uh, you know, five review requirement that would make them not, eligible for this podcast so yeah it's, i mean it's kind of surprising that this one is that that lone one it's like oh it doesn't have a lot of reviews and it's actually pretty solid yeah i i'm fine talking insider baseball i mean we're all critics here and you know part of the thing we do is we get screenings ahead of time so that we can have our reviews out for films that release and i do remember promotion for party hard die young i i don't put this on shutter at all because I do remember emails coming through that were asking, you know, do you want review content, stuff like that? And I just did a really quick Google while you were talking right there. And if if this is correct, like, I don't even see a review on Bloody Disgusting or Dread Central. So it's kind of like, not even like the big horror sites reviewed it. And maybe I had to dig deeper really quickly. But again, upon looking really quickly, I don't see anything else, you know, even from those kind of sites. So I, I just wonder how this fell through the cracks so mightily. And it, I, I don't, I'm baffled a little bit. I don't know. I, I do a lot of this reviewing indie horror, and I see a lot of films that are way less on the quality scale than Party Hard Die Young, and yet they still, again, they have at least ten, even fifteen reviews sometimes. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say two things, um, and I think these both speak to how this movie may not have gotten discovered and how it might get discovered later on. I think one just to really put it, the the nail in the head of the conversation we've been having is that I, I don't think we know as an audience how to feel about slashers right now because we're sort of caught between waves. Um, I think that when we start to see more good slashers, uh, more mainstream, high-profile good slashers, which you talk to anybody in the industry, they, they're kind of in agreement that they're coming, right? Like this is something that a lot of 
people are excited by and there's going to be a lot of these and the the kind of lower tier the lower budget stuff Donato that you're already covering I mean we're seeing them bubble up already so we're moving back towards a wave of slasher films which I think will be favorable to this and I, I think it comes back to the very beginning of when we were talking about this I just don't think it's a particularly good title and I think that when you're at a genre festival and you see something like Party Hard or Die Young and you know that there are a lot of other titles out there no disrespect is a translation. I'm sure there were good reasons for it, but it just it feels like a the kind of title for a type of movie which this isn't, and I think that probably turned a lot of people off. Um, I think that that there were a lot of folks that saw this and were like, "I know what this is. I don't need to see it," and they missed out on something that was better for it. Yeah, I, I would have to agree on the title. Um, it, it doesn't really. It sounds pretty generic you know uh the movie doesn't really reflect that but it, it is a very generic title and and it's very easy to say pass um i do agree i think that wave is like good slashers are coming i think the big sort of um i, I think the one that's going to push it through even you know knowing nothing about it is um is james wan's new movie that he's directing um i don't remember the title of it off the top of my head but he said it, it's a, a giallo and giallo and slasher pretty much go hand in hand. And, and if that's a, if it's a black glove, big knife kind of slot uh, giallo, I think, uh, I think that's going to be the one to spearhead this new era of slashers in. Not to put too much pressure on the black Christmases of the world too, but like oh, this yeah. whole subgenre really depends on whether or not y'all get it right. So no pressure. Yeah, and I th- yeah, no pressure. Yeah, and I think the answer to how, how do we make this not forgotten anymore? How do, how do we get this out to the public? I think the three of us just have to write our, uh, you know, some kind of feature on why Party Hard Die Young is the turning point for slasher cinema and what it could mean for the future. And if you're listening and you write that before us, God damn you. God damn you straight. Actually, please write this before me because I don't have the time. (laughs) Not Watch Party Hard Die Young. I want you to like it. And then I want you to write about it. I mean, that's the thing, you know, asking like, how do we get these films out in the public? And like, how do people discover it? I think it going to Shudder should have been enough of a discovery on its own because too many indie horror films don't go to Shudder and don't go to things like this. You know, maybe if you go straight to Amazon Prime, you get a little bit of of that immediate watchability and immediate viewership. But I don't know. This went Shudder. This went exactly where it needed to go. And yet people still aren't really talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue even the Prime Video route wouldn't even be the best because Shutter, you have curation, you have people actually carefully curating and spe- specifying it towards their audience. So if you you know you're an indie horror film and you want to get eyes on you, Shutter really is the way to go. And you know who knows? People aren't talking about it, um, but people certainly may be watching it. I mean, it's a big world, so we don't know necessarily. But all we do know is like in the circles we travel, no one is talking about it. And that's kind of a shame. So yeah, maybe we're the ones who have to do it. Maybe somebody listening will watch it and go, hey, these guys are on to something and write something on it. Um, as Matt said, please do. All three of us are busy. So if you have the time to do it, do it. We don't have the time for this crap. <laughs> but but we did have the time to watch it and discuss it. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I'm grateful that it was on your guys' list. Um, I love I love the show. I've been listening to it since you guys started it. Um, and it's it's certainly tough because, you, you know, it, it's hard going through th- these movies that don't have as many reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. And you, you're looking for that diamond in the rough. And sometimes you get it. And other times you're just kind of watching not even a bad movie, just kind of a middle of the road movie. And so 
Um, I, I think, you know, what, whether it's a full-blown diamond or just a, just a nugget of one, um, I, I think we found one here with, with this movie. I agree. Well, Ryan, since you've uh, pumped us up a little bit, I suppose we should probably let people know how they can contact you. It seems only fair. Uh, if they're interested in reading more of your writing, if they're interested in your upcoming episodes of the Playlist podcast, uh, how do they follow you? What social media is good? What do you want? What are you talking? What are you, what, what, what's happening? What's happening? Uh, Twitter's probably the best place to find me. You can find me at ryollie 90 That's R-Y-O-L-L-I-E 90. Uh, I do occasionally write stuff for the playlist, but I mostly do the um, mostly do the discourse podcast over the playlist podcast network, of which both both Matthews here have been on the show. Um, so I suggest you check that out. Uh, because as Monica pointed out, uh, I have been on, I am a new father, so I'm a little bit behind on episodes, but we should have one in the coming weeks to discuss Terminator. We'll probably have one on Dr. Sleep and we'll probably do a catch up of, of uh, Parasite, The Lighthouse and Dolomite is my name. So be on the lookout for that. Um, but yeah, that Twitter's the best place to find me and I'll, I'm on the playlist. Awesome. Uh, first and most important, Matt, how do people follow you? You can follow me at Donato Bomb on Letterboxd, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find my writing on places such as Slash Film, Flickering Myth, We Got This Covered, Collider, and some other websites that, I don't know, I just don't have time to list them all. So, yeah, just follow the Twitter. I'll post it all there and uh, beg you to read my work. Uh, you can also follow me. I'm not quite as prolific as Donato, but I do my best. On Twitter, it's Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. And Certified Forgot is this show and this podcast handle as well. Um, Ryan, I want to say thanks so much for coming on the show. I had a great time talking about this movie. Matthew, will you please take us out in our usual manner? Demon Way. Goodbye. Goodbye.